everybody, welcome to the Ask LFC podcast. My name is Harrison Gilming, Director of Worship Arts here at Lake Forest Church in Huntersville. Sitting down with... Hey, what's happening? Mike Moses, Lead Pastor of Lake Forest Church. Good to be heard by you all and glad you're joining in today. That's right. It's been a nice... Uh, it's been a nice part of rhythm for Mike and I getting back into the podcast here to start off the new year. We hope you guys are enjoying it as well. Uh, our episode today is going to be mostly about uh, some follow-ups from uh, our teaching this last weekend, looking at a couple of weird things in the book of Genesis. Yes, we're in the prehistory section of the Bible. As we're teaching through the Bible in a year, we've started with the early chapters of Genesis. Chapters 1 through 11 are prehistory. Chapter 12, verse 1, where we'll only get to at the end of this Sunday, we enter actual recorded history with Abraham. And so uh, there's a lot of fascinating stuff in here. So today we're going to unpack a couple of questions from the last couple of sermons. Uh, Well, really the last one. One, um, a listener's question first. Thank you for a great question. Then we're going to talk, I'm going to revisit the question of was the, the flood in Noah's story global or regional? And then we're going to ask the question, could all those animals have fit on the ark, like statistically speaking? And then we're going to get to the what most people say is the freakiest of all freakazoid details in Genesis 1 through 11, which is the uh, sons of God intermating with the daughters of men and creating a, breed, a race called the Nephilim, sometimes referred to as giants. So that's what we're going to cover today. Oh yeah, first... Uh, we want to take just a minute and give you a couple of housekeeping things for you guys who are first followers. Uh, the first one is we wanted to let you guys know that starting on February 7th, uh, for the first time in 10, 11 months, mm-hmm. uh, we will have uh, some some groups from Kidtropolis safely meeting in limited numbers on Sunday morning during our 10 o'clock worship service. Yes, we felt for and heard from our younger families the desire to have the ability to have their kids here in kids' ministry, age-appropriate, so they could also uh, return to in-person worship as they're comfortable. So we're looking forward to that February 7th. It'll require pre-registration. We have a lot of safe ways to do this. Also, uh, as the pandemic wave um, lessens, if, if it does... We'll ha- we have to watch, but if it continues to to uh, uh, dissipate, whatever you say about a wave, um, we will be adding more adult worship offerings in person as well. For those who feel comfortable, we're not trying to induce or say everyone should come back in person prior to a vaccine or herd immunity, but it's as your conscience allows you and as you have a spiritual need. Yep. Secondly, we want to let you know that next week on this podcast, uh, there's going to be a unique opportunity to meet uh, a special guest who's actually going to be becoming a part of our Lake Forest family. You, the podcast audience, will be the first to meet our newest church planting pastor, a a young, uh, fire-in-the-belly, startup-oriented with a real track record of starting multi-ethnic communities of around Christ. Uh, so we can't wait to introduce you to that new church planning pastor for University City next Wednesday. Very good. All right. Let's get right to it then. Here are weird questions from Genesis. Our questions sent in to uh, our email address, asklfc at lakeforest.org, which you can also use to send us uh, any questions as we're going to be 
as as Mike has mentioned, getting back to about once a month, really trying to do uh, uh, an episode like this of just taking a look at your questions. So the more we get, the more we can mm-hmm. address and answer from you guys. This one was sent in by our friend Tim to that email address. And he said, hey, you talked about how the word earth used in the flood account could have meant the regional known earth is the same Hebrew word for earth that's used in Genesis 12, three. Uh, is that the same Hebrew word for earth used in Genesis 12, three, when God promises Abram that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So is the, is the word earth the same when it's talking about the flood and in the promise to Abram? It's a great question. And I'm, I'm, um, Tim, thank you for that. And it caught, I did not know the specific answer to that question. I know what I think about which uh, one or both of those uh, I think is a regional interpretation or a global interpretation. So let me tell you what I, so I looked into specifically the Hebrew word translated earth in both of those accounts. And so just to, uh, to backtrack, in Genesis 7, 17 and following in the Noah account and the flood, uh, it said several times that the waters covered the earth or all the earth. Um, now, interestingly, I'm, I've got my brain down into Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, which is this coming Sunday's primary sermon subject. We'll look ahead to Abraham, but really we're going to finish Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. And what's interesting, Harrison, is in Genesis 11, 1, it says, now all the people of the earth, hmm. you know, blah, 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 yep. uh, introducing Tower of Babel, that is the same word used for earth in the Noah and the flood account in Genesis 7, 17. So the waters covered all the earth. And then the flood covered all the earth. So that word, first of all, that's the same word. And I'm going to unpack that word before we get to and look at, is that the same word in Genesis 12, 3? The word is ha'aretz in Hebrew. Uh, it, the uh, primary reference for biblical scholars is something called Strong's Concordance of Biblical Words. And this is the Strong's Concordance word number 776. Ding! Harrison, you're not taking, you didn't write that down. Oh, it's all number up here. Number 776. Steel, steel trap. Okay, here's the, the number one, uh, there are two primary meanings for that word, ha'aretz, from the Noah flood account. Earth, meaning the whole earth, as in Genesis, it's used in Genesis 1-1. God created the heavens and the earth. Context there tells us all the heavens, all the earth. The second meaning in Strong's Concordance, uh, sort of the authoritative biblical dictionary, is country, territory, district, region, or even a specific piece of land. Mm -hmm. That word is used for all of that range of meanings in biblical texts, in Hebrew specifically, the uh, Hebrew scriptures, for all of those meanings. And as I said on Sunday, context alone dictates which of the meanings it is. There are signals in the surrounding, whether it's the whole passage or the words attached to it, there are modifiers that tell us, is it global, is it regional? Uh, And I gave you my reasons for thinking why the flood is uh, referring to regional meaning of earth, and I'll do a little bit more of that after I finish this section on this word. But I think the context demands regional for the flood. Um, now, 
And I'm going to argue the same thing this Sunday, the same word for the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, 1. Now, all the, the peoples on all the earth, something like that. Um, and I think it's a, like the most literal reading of Genesis 11 after you've read Genesis 10 certainly leads to regional. So you'd have to be leaning into, in my view, if you read it with fresh eyes and then you concluded that the Tower of Babel is referring to, to all the people globally, I think you'd have to be reading it through uh, the traditional reading, which has always assumed it was global, and then reading into it. Because the literal reading, uh, I think, is clearly regional. But I'll save that for Sunday. How about it? All right. Is that I good? Like it. Uh, or am I boring the general congregation and it's only the listeners of the podcast who care about such questions? Which do you think? No, I, I think this is interesting stuff. I mean, uh, I, I told you before we started recording, Mike, that our our entire community group last night spent 45 minutes talking about the flood particularly. And so I think this is a this is a subject that uh, is, is mysterious to people. Well, I know our Bible readings this week primarily get us toward... Abraham. But if if you're looking forward to the sermon this Sunday, I encourage you to read Genesis chapter 10 and look for signals that would cause you to then interpret Genesis 11.1 1 as referring to either regional peoples or global peoples. Do your own work there, and then I'll, I'll talk about it Sunday. Okay, now let's get to, to Tim's most excellent question, which is, so is the word for earth in Genesis 12, 3. That's the promise and covenant with Abraham. This is this is going to be the huge corner turn from prehistory, creation good, and then uh, and humanity is the pinnacle of creation. We fall into sin. There's a begin, beginning of a promise that God's going to redeem all that. But, but then Genesis 3 through 11, basically sin increases and God starts putting limitations like, I'm only going to let this go so far. Y'all can only screw up creation so far uh, before I do something. And then Genesis 12 is like God says, now I'm going to initiate the whole redemption plan of all of it. But, but we need these chapters to see how sin proliferates on our own as human beings, left to ourselves. Um, and so this Genesis 12, 3 is God picks a certain man in a certain clan and says, through you, I'm going to birth this rescue plan to the whole world. And here's where he first makes his promises in Genesis uh, 12, 3. He says, uh, and all, let me pull it up, a literal, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you, I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. And, and later he says, in your seed. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the promise which is ultimately fulfilled through Jesus, okay? Um, Tim, you didn't ask for all that context, but I know you're an astute student of Scripture, and you know that that's what's here. So there's a lot riding on the question. If, If the word for earth here is merely regional, is God's promise to Abraham himself, and that the blessing will spread to all the families of the earth, if that's merely regional, then the salvation promised is regional and not global. So there's a lot riding on it. And Tim, I had never thought about hmm. this question in a lot. It's a question you should be asking. When you hear a, 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 a Bible teacher like me uh, interpret any iteration of the word earth as regional in these earlier stories, it is right to then demand in our intellectual rigor, are we picking and choosing? 
which we interpret as regional or global? It's a super awesome question that I'm embarrassed I didn't think of myself. So super well done. Uh, takes an engineer to think like that. Uh, so uh, I'm just, you know, that's, that's my ESP. I'm sensing maybe, maybe that's, that's the type of brain behind this question. So now, drum roll please. Is this word interpreted earth in Genesis 12:3 the same as in the flood account and in Tower of Babel? The answer is no. The answer interpreted earth in the flood and in Tower of Babel is uh, ha'aretz. Uh, did, did I say that already? Did, did I give you the word? Okay, mm-hmm. ha'aretz. The word here for earth is ha'adamah. Ha'adamah of the earth. Now. Um, Again, Strong's concordance of Bible words, word number 127. You're like, ooh, 127. That's an early word in the list. That's because it goes back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. So here we go. It's from this Adama. It's from the same word Adam or Adam, okay? Hmm. Humankind. You remember that Adama refers uh, uh, earlier uh, the ground, and then Adam comes out of it in the creation account. Uh, the primary here's the primary meanings of this word Adama: ground and land. Over and over and over, that's the primary word. There is a secondary. Uh, it's not even secondary. The seventh meaning was the whole earth, if it's in context. So you go, okay. So is it regional mm-hmm. <laughs> or global? Um, well, the meaning here is clearly global, because if you look at, again, the, the words in the, in the concordance uh, that modify Adamah here in Genesis 12, 3, um, and the words is all the families set upon the earth or the ground, Setting back, getting back to the words in Genesis 1 and 2. It's very clear that this is all. It's the Hebrew word for all. There's not an interpretation of some or a few. And the ground is not in any way modified to mean regional. It's just kind of like the earth that God created. It's all the people, all the families on it. And so, um, uh, let's see. Questions of it, how, how does that hit you, Harrison? That makes sense. I mean, uh, you know, the the first word that's used earlier on definitely, you know, part of the confusion is that it, it can be used in multiple ways. And it sounds like as you're describing this word used in the promise that it really more clearly is meaning every single set of feet that touch the earth, yeah. that those who those who those are who are included in this. And pretty much all commentators have taken it that way. And I don't think our questioner was questioning, oh, does this interpretation of the word in, in Noah's account mean that that changes Abraham's promise? I think probably the question is, does, does it invalidate a regional interpretation of the flood yep. or the tower? And that answer is no. So thank you for that excellent question. Please roll some questions in over the next few weeks. We'll have another q and We'll have a solely dedicated Q&A uh, episode in a few weeks, but let me but let me re- refer back to the the primary question that people interacted with me about uh, last Sunday, and that your community group did, which is was the flood global or regional? I'll own here a little bit more strongly. My my view is firmly 
that the biblical author is intending a regional flood, not a global one. Although the author may not have thought of it in those terms, I don't want to put anachronistic concerns in the mind of the biblical author, whether it was Moses or the school of Moses around the time of the Exodus, which is when the Genesis documents were written. Um, and, and I'll quote to you a very definite opinion by Tim Keller. I think most of the listeners to this blog will understand that Tim Keller is a lion of conservative biblical Christianity today mm-hmm. uh, or uh, biblical evangelicalism, um, who I refer to quite often. Um, he's sort of almost a C.S. Lewis level in our generation. Um, and, and so if you've read The Reason for God or Prodigal God, but uh, so he's been when one of the most effective apologists for the Christian faith in the 21st century with his book, The Reason for God. Our community group did a video series out of that. Um, he takes the perspective that it's a regional flood. And here's a, let me just give you a quote from Keller that I did not bore the rest of the congregation with on Sunday. Quote, I believe Noah's flood happened, but it was a regional flood. I believe Noah's uh, not a worldwide flood. On the one hand, those who insist on it being a worldwide flood seem to ignore too much of the scientific evidence that there was no such thing. On the other hand, those who insist that it was a legend or myth seem to ignore too much of the trustworthiness of the Scripture. Uh, Mm -hmm. After Genesis 1, the rest of Genesis reads like historical narrative. If it is asked, what of the biblical assertions that the flood covered every mountain or over the whole earth We should remember the Bible often speaks of the known world as the whole world. And then Keller uh, talks about the reference that I used on Sunday from the fact that when it says that when there was a famine in Egypt in 1800 B.C. and the nations of the whole earth came to Egypt and Joseph for food, we all of us read that and understand there were not Eskimos coming in on dog sleds. There were not uh, pygmies from southern Africa. There were not Amazonian tribes from the Amazon mm-hmm. basin in modern-day Brazil who, who got in their canoes and came across the Atlantic Ocean to get food. That the, that the, the, the uh, lack of food was, was regional. It was those known mm-hmm. people. So um, I think that's interesting. Let me, let me um, address one other question. Uh, uh, point that I want to make about the flood being historical. This is now not on the question of was it regional or global, but was it historical? Um, I I realize I left my notes at home on this, um, so I can give specificity uh, as needed to anyone. Um, But I, I ran across a reference. This was not in any of my reading about the flood. This was just in my reading about things I'm interested in in the world. Um, and it is this. Could, could there have been this? So if all the ancient Near Eastern nations also have m- stories of a, of a flood, a regional or global flood, their known earth flood that destroyed people, that has a lot of, of symbolic similarities. There's one man who survives. There's a boat. In more than one, there are animals. In more than one, there's a sacrifice to the god or the gods when it's over. Um, I address that a bit in the sermon that uh, that I believe that the flood is historical, that those 
resonances or, or memories of our most ancient civil, human civilizations, um, that a shared memory, um, and that this is history, and that God's Word now gives us the God's actual view of it. Let me give you one more reason why I believe it's history, and why I believe that all of these civilizations, these are also, the Harrison, the most ancient literate civilizations. Literacy in humankind goes back to this specific area of the globe, and it goes back a, a good bit. Um, uh, and, and so if human literacy goes back, it, I think we start seeing recordings of it in Mesopotamia and Egypt, uh, two and three thousand BC before Christ. So interesting. To think about this: the, the the population in in about I'm going to now uh, generalize around estimate around the year 1900. Harrison is when Westerners first stumbled into the um, uh, native population, indigenous population of the island of Tasmania. Um, and it, it may be 1800, but I think it's as late as, as the late 1800s. They stumbled into them. They had been cut off from other human peoples for five to 6,000 years. Um, you know what cut them off was the, the last time the climate changed and the seas rose. And they used to have a landmass connecting them to, um, I want to say, Australia. And so geology, history of geology shows when this happened. It happened something like between six and 9,000 years ago, Harrison. And that land bridge now is cut off, much like the ancient land bridge between Alaska and uh, Russia, S- Russia mm-hmm. Siberia, yep. th- which is how human beings came into the Americas. Uh, so this is the, roughly the same event. So since that time, Tasmanians have been cut off from external human beings. Guess what? Their or their Tasmanian nativistic origin story includes flood, a flood. Wow! But they speak of it not wow. not 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 like Noah's flood. Okay, different from that. They don't say it that way. They speak of it as a. Uh, and again, I'm sorry, I, I left my notes at home because I I was jonesing on this Saturday night, and I and I was it hurt me deeply to cut it out of the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Saturday night. I cry. I weep over paragraphs that I have to cut out because this is the kind of stuff I like. Um, they uh, so sociologists show that they have a memory going back six to nine thousand years of the waters rising and cutting them off now as a distinct people. That's more the story there. It's not, it doesn't have resonances with Noah. I'm not trying to make that, but do you understand what I'm saying is the power of oral culture and oral memory in the human brain, that is six to 8,000 years of a pre-literate culture. And so to, to now let's analogize to the ancient civilizations in the Near East and the oral preservation of a flood event is entirely reasonable, is a minimal word mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, to say it. So that is, that is now a new, to my knowledge, nobody's ever applied that Tasmanian example to uh, the veracity and the historicity of the flood event and oral, the transmission of oral memory, human yep. memory. I just happened to read that article 
<laughs> in the New York Times. That's uh, uh, out of the because they they feature so many things about archaeology and global uh, issues. So That's there so you go, cool. a new apology uh, never before invented. That is so cool. I that is that's really neat to think about and and I think that you know a thing that keeps popping into my my mind as a as an overarching thing over all of this is what I really appreciate is um when you just as a as a overarching thing when you when you approach God's word honestly and you acknowledge the spots where um there there are some rooms for interpretations and there's some spots where it's really clear. But when you follow that rabbit trail uh, and you're honest about it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't change this, this big scary sounding word called inerrancy, Mm -hmm. which is that God's word is an, is an ultimate, you know, errorless book of truth. And it's like, it is true in all that it affirms. That's true. And, and so the point of that to be don't be scared if you grew up uh if maybe you grew up in a christian home and you've never conceived for a moment of the flood being anything other than a flood that covered the whole earth and now you're saying well what you're telling me what the bible says is not true no it's it's taking an honest look at what the text of the scripture says which is which is what's so neat and exciting to me about this year and hopefully some folks personally and directly getting yeah. into God's word more and understanding a little bit more. This brings us to the Nephilim in Genesis 6 uh, because the the narrative from Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve leave the garden in shame and they, they are now out of the presence of God. They, they've uh, fallen, um, the fall, uh, le- sin leads to separation from God and they're east of the garden. So they have no access to the tree of uh, eternal life. Um, but their line separates into two. One is Abel, which is a, a righteous line that is preserving the worship of God, and one is Cain's line, which increases in wickedness. And, and so the Noah study, to make it regional, does not—it's it's that— in fact, there's a point where it says, now this is the generations of Noah. The author's clear. We're now getting into this one family line. And they were of the righteous line. Um, and so God is kind of saying, man, all these people have gone crazy. Even the righteous line's going crazy. And that relates to the Nephilim. So I'm going to hit a reset button. Uh, and, 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 it's th- and it's regionally to the, the people who were carrying is one thing. Uh, interpretation. The people who were carrying this mandate from God and still remembered it and recalled it and were worshiping God truly, even at east of the garden, east of Eden, uh, and Noah is a, an inheritor of that, and then he carries it out of the ark. Um, so, the Nephilim, can you read the brief scripture there? And we'll, I, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna skip over the question about the animals in the ark. I think uh, the fact, if, if we interpret it as regional, it that's no longer a problem. If we don't interpret it as regional, there's some math out there that you can Google, and if we have time at the end, I'll give it briefly, that makes it plausible that the animals could have fit on it. I mean, this is a big honking thing, and it's math. uh, You can Google this that someone did based on how many sheep could fit in a railroad boxcar versus feet of deck, square feet of deck on the ark as is described in Genesis. So Mm. I'm going to leave that one there. All right. We'll see if we get to it. This is uh, is Genesis— 
chapter 6. Uh, I'll give you a couple verses actually to lead up. This seems relevant. Uh, this is verses 1 through 4. It says, uh, When human beings began to increase in number on earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of humans were beautiful, and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, they were the heroes of old men of renown. So we see here a limitation God puts on humankind because they have we have fallen into sin. He puts an age limitation at this point saying, no, 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 evil is not going to live forever. The, the, by the way, which is 100% fulfilled in the second to last chapter of Revelation, when evil and those who cling to it, including the evil one, are thrown into the lake of fire. But, but this is a beginning hint where God says evil will never be allowed to endure forever. And it won't be allowed to endure but a certain amount of time in humans. And then we get to this reference. Um, and honestly, uh, some scholars say this is a hint of about people outside of the garden. That's a whole other question hmm. we'll, that we won't get to. Um, uh, in this passage, there are, um, so it says the Nephilim are usually, so it says the sons of God came into the daughters of women, saw them as desirable, and then it's usually understood the next verse is meaning that the Nephilim are some mixed offspring of those two. That's, that's the, and that does seem to be the plain understanding of the passage. Um, you do see the Nephilim come back. That word is used again in Numbers 1333, much later in history and in Israel's history. Um, the grammar is, is uh, ambiguous there, and in Numbers 13, it may be that, that the author is grabbing the word Nephilim here as a, as a way, a placeholder for a, a, a tribe of people who are of extremely tall stature. Hmm. Like you remember the tribe in Africa that Manute Bowl came from yep. into the NBA? Big, tall people. I mean, honestly. Um, but l- let's just fit here. The mystery of the Nephilim, Harrison, let me just say this primarily, is part of the Genesis tradition. Um, we have to, you engage Genesis, and if you can't live with a sense of mystery about the things of God and the things uh, of origin and the mind of God and why and how and who, if you can't endure some mystery, then then you shouldn't read Genesis. Um and this has been part of the mystery. In fact, I was so intrigued by this passage that I asked my professor my last semester in seminary in Pasadena, California, could I do my Hebrew exegesis paper on this passage? So I did a 20-page paper on this mm-hmm. passage. I'm not going to—who knows? Uh, and I came to a very tentative conclusion back in the day. Um I did win the Biblical Exegesis Award for my class in seminary in part out of that passage. Hmm. Uh, they, they surprised me at graduation. I, I, I was presented with a Hebrew Bible signed by all my professors, That's which awesome. I was super like enthused about. Um, I appreciated that. Um, don't ask me to read Hebrew today. <laughs> so, but But I want you to first of all say I'm not going to give a tight answer here. There's some mystery here. There's some things. Um, So let me go through what I think, what are the the options given by various faithful interpreters for this. Uh, Let me get there here in my notes. 
Um, the, and here, the big idea of this passage is that sin and wickedness are proliferating as humans are giving over the worship of the true God to uh, remember the fall in Genesis 3 was the man and wife decided they were the arbiters of good and evil, not God. So that's why they ate from that tree. We want to decide what's good and evil. And Genesis 6 is mostly showing that goes to a really messed up place, a violent place, a sexual perverted place, a place where people are abused, where the violent victimize others, etc. That's the big idea here of Genesis 6. It's not trying to tell us about freaky, uh, the equivalent of alien abduction stories. Um, so just keep that in mind. That's, that's the big idea. And this seems to be placed here as a primary illustration where we'd all go, oh yeah, that's messed up of moral decline. So this may be, I, this is the most difficult passage to interpret it all in, in all of Genesis. That's why I took it on back in seminary and then it defeated me and I really didn't have as much of a conclusion as I will have for you today. I do have a point of view, Harrison, okay. and I'll tell you that at the end and I did not when I was 28. Um, there are basically four views. The sons of God marrying the daughters of men. Four views. Here's one view. That these are angels cohabiting with human women producing unnatural offspring. Now, by definition, I, I used to, I looked into that whole passage and I never even saw the inference back when I did this in seminary that by definition that would have to mean a fallen angel. It would have, which is a demon. Hmm. Uh, and I didn't see that inference back in that <clears throat> day. And their unnatural offspring is the Nephilim. Uh, or if you have the King James Version, it says giants. It, so the Nephilim is an improvement in our modern English translations. It gives us the actual Hebrew word because it's more of a proper name maybe. Hmm. Um, giants, it was a, an interpretive word. Um, uh, so um, the idea here is the sons of God mean angels, and they would have had to be fallen angels, which makes them demons. And evidently they somehow physically manifested and possessed human beings. And, and we have popular literature and movies that surmise this. They cohabited with human women and it led to this race called the Nephilim. This is, the, this is actually recorded as the view <clears throat> among many of the early church fathers or the early church interpreters of Scripture for the first 300 years of the Christian church. <laughs> kind of starting from the year 150 is when we start getting written interpretation by a lot of the Greek, early Greek pastors. Um, uh, so uh, th that's the, is that it, it's, and their main reason for that is because the phrase sons of God is frequently used in the Old Testament to mean angels. This is especially in the book of Job. Three times in the book of Job, quote, the sons of God refers to the angelic host or angelic realm. There are also some passages in the New Testament. Uh, in the book of Jude and in Second Peter, this seemed to get a give a little bit of credence to this. I explored that in my paper back then. If you interpret it in a particular way, not in every interpretation, and and the but the main reason this view is held, and you're not a heretic if you hold this view, it, is that the it, this was the Jewish interpretation of the first century. There's the apocryphal book, uh, apocryphal book of First mm -hmm. Enoch. If you grew up Catholic, you have a Catholic Bible. There are these books of the Bible in between the Old and New Testament that 
Protestants refer to as the Apocrypha. We do not receive them as the infallible Word of God, but as interesting, maybe helpful. Roman Catholics receive them as a little more authoritative than that, but not as authoritative as the Old and New Testament. And in the book of 1 Enoch, it actually reviews this scene and and says it's fallen angels Hmm. cohabiting with women. Uh, There's some problems with this view, Harrison. Um, uh, It's not the dominant view today among scholars, so let me just mostly tell you that. Scholars uh, who read the Bible uh, from a, we see it's trustworthy, and those who do not see it as trustworthy kind of generally agree. And the biggest problem is when you look at this passage, the judgment that comes as a result is not a judgment on angels. Hmm. It's a judgment upon humankind. It's upon the world. The judgment is not located in the heavenly realms. It's located on earth. And so it's not the natural interpretation. And this gets to, friends, what we say about context, interpreting a passage in terms of context. This is a good example of letting the Bible and its context first be the first interpreter and then let other scripture be the second interpreter. Um, here, so, so I don't adhere to that view. A second but, but distinct view is, does this refer to an ancient Near Eastern myth? And this would be scholars who are really questioning the veracity of the Bible and saying, here's where ancient myths from other cultures nearby sneaks into the Bible. And these are myths where lesser gods, not like the top god, but lesser gods sneak in and cohabitate with mortal women to produce demigods. And those demigods would then be this race of the Nephilim. We're all familiar with, many are familiar with Greek and Roman mythology, and that's the big idea here, Mm. like the Titans in Greek mythology. Again, we have popular movies about these things. The Titans were the offsprings of gods and men. Um... I don't think that's what the passage is saying either. Um, Although one of the commentaries is helpful here, that in referencing the Nephilim uh, and talking about the ancient men of renown, the author here is probably refuting a pagan myth. Okay, I don't think I had time to refer to this when we preached on Genesis 1. But Genesis 1 is not only beautiful Hebrew poetry, it's a polemical tract refuting all of the pagan myths uh, around the Hebrew people uh, saying that multiple gods or some freaky thing made physical creation uh, and humans don't matter. It's refuting. And so Genesis 6 is, is intended to be a refutation of local pagan myths, showing that the Nephilim were not superhuman, they're mortal, and they're also subject to the judgment of God and to hmm. mortality and death that would come through the flood. And so that if we know that that's the theological purpose of Genesis 6, then we know that that author would not have been trying to gain favor with local nearby myths, but is refuting them. So I, so I don't think that view is possible at all because we know the intent of the biblical author. And I, I think that's actually would be intellectually poor judgment uh, to choose that one. Another view that I think is plausible is that when it says the sons of men, maybe, uh, I'm sorry, the sons of God, you're familiar as are all of us with the fact that um, it arose in the ancient Near East and in many other cultures around the world that the ruler or the king would solely be referred to as a son of God. Hmm. That's all the way down to Roman emperors at the time of Jesus. Jesus being called son of God was also a polemical critique 
Whenever Paul preaches, he's the Son of God, the preeminent Lord over all. That is a political critique that the Roman emperor is not and hmm. like would get him in trouble. That's yep. one reason Christians yeah. got in trouble. <laughs> well, the, so the same thing, the same thing that was starting to happen in these cultures. And so it may have been that, that the references to the, the sons of, and this fits with the, the, the growing of sin. They're like the sons of the kings start taking whoever they want, whatever women. Okay, let's go down to medieval mythology and we watch uh, the, the, one of the more recent King Arthur movies that had, uh, what's his name, Richard Gere in it. It was called First Knight. Number one, because King Arthur becomes the first knight. But in part because the sin and the evil that King Arthur was there to correct was the, the ruler, the petty medieval ruler, claiming first knight with any peasant's wife. This is hmm. this is immortalized in the in the movie um, Braveheart. Yep. Uh, that the Lord would come in and, and demand the right to sleep with the wife of any lower man to assert his to violently and sexually and psychologically assert his predominance. How sick is this? This is the predominance of human sin. This is where it goes when sin becomes organized in human communities, when sin has political power behind it. This is disgusting. This is terrible. And this is part of what I think makes this interpretation plausible, Harrison, is every reader down to our day, there are movies made about how heinous this type of sin is today. Hmm. Therefore, justifying God's judgment and God's plan to make it right. Um, so, I, I think that is a possible view. The view that I think makes the most sense, and then we'll close today, is that the sons of God here are the descendants of the righteous line since the garden. So, there's a lot of people, I, I have not made this authoritative, but there are a lot of people in my circles who teaching this material will really emphasize that out of the garden comes a righteous line and an unrighteous line. And that, that the righteous line here is Abel, the son whose worship was right worship, murdered by Cain, uh, who had wrong worship and evil in his heart, um, and did not worship God. Uh, that the sons of God is, is a reference to those who are maintaining the true worship of Elohim Yahweh here, um, and so that the and 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 that therefore the proliferation of evil is that even those guys start to intermarry with the the peoples who are not following God. They're they're not maintaining a distinctness. They are uh, they are not prioritizing the right worship of God in their families, and so therefore the worship of God is petering out even more. Making Noah, which is the culmination of this chapter, a more singular person. And yet here's this guy who maintained worship of the one true God and whatever his knowledge was of that God. Mm. Um, I think that's the most likely interpretation of it. And this view or, or something like it was the view of St. Augustine by the time you get to the 500s A.D. in the church. The view of Martin Luther, the view of John Calvin. Uh, and defended by many today. Hmm. And so I think uh, a general principle of interpretation would be to take the least fanciful view, um, unless we're compelled by strong reasons to do otherwise. 
Uh, and this is the least fanciful, most straightforward. It fits with all the vectors of the text, including the culmination in the singularity of Noah as a man who is righteous, because he's wor- not because he's perfect, but because his worship is in the direction of a good God from whom he receives his righteousness by faith. That makes sense. I mean, it, that, that, that's always made a little bit more sense to me because it seems like, you know, this is not a scholarly view, but it's just such a funny thing if there was something that fundamentally major that was just snuck in as a couple of lines of text in Genesis chapter 6 uh, that yeah. feels like it just crazy alters the reality yeah. of what yeah, life yeah, yeah, was yeah. then. So that that settles a little bit better. In than fact, that. I had a paragraph in that par- in that paper I wrote in seminary like, is, is this all of Greco-Roman mythology and whatever was maybe true behind it in prehistory all contained in one sentence? I don't think that's the case, but, yeah. <laughs> but that was one of my uh, speculations. That's awesome. Well, Mike, thanks for digging into all that stuff, and I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. We're looking forward to uh, coming back around in three or four weeks and tackling some more questions from you guys. We're looking forward to next week, sitting down with our new church planner, and uh, just glad you guys decided to join us today. Yes, I look forward to the Tower of Babel on Sunday. Harrison, thank you. Sounds good. See you guys. Thanks, Mike.